is part two of my interview with Judge Dan Stidham. In 1993, in the small city of West Memphis, Arkansas, tucked between two major east-west freeways and smack in the middle of the Bible Belt, three eight-year-old boys were brutally murdered, setting the town and the area into a frenzy to find the killers. Most thought at the time these horrific crimes were the result of satanic ritual murder. Three teens, Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly, who became known as the West Memphis Three, were suspected of carrying out these foul satanic rituals that ended in the young boy's death. Although there was no evidence that this was true, the teens were arrested and tried and found guilty of these horrifying crimes. Dan Stidham was a young attorney who became Jesse Miss Kelly's defender against these allegations. He had no idea that it would change his life forever. I became involved in this situation because I was hired to write the script of a nonfiction book written by reporter Mara Leverett called Devil's Knot that threw tremendous doubt on the case against the teens. That script, through several revisions, became the movie Devil's Knot, starring Reese Witherspoon and Colin Firth. My guest today is Dan Stidham, now Judge Stidham, who has lectured and written extensively on this case and his involvement in it. Dan and I became friends in 2005 when I began working on this script, and I hold this friendship as the most valuable thing to have come from me being hired to write a movie about this incredible case. Hang on to your earbuds and settle in, because this is Plot Points Podcast. I want to remind the audience that this is Plot Points Podcast, and I'm going to cut out segments of this for the other my other podcast, which is Whoever Writes Monsters. We're talking uh, to Judge Dan Stidham, who was a young attorney uh, who became a public defender for one of the defendants in the West Memphis Three case. Uh, and uh, I've known Dan for quite a while, and I'm just going to thank him again for agreeing to do this, uh, take out some of his time on a Sunday. Let's kick forward a few years when I know that there were appeals. I know that there was, um, I, I don't remember what you said about the Supreme Court, the Arkansas Supreme Court, if they were unwilling to take the case or if they, they went against it or whatever. Um, but I know you spent hundreds and thousands of hours trying to continue to defend Jesse even after the, the, uh, the conviction and uh, he was in jail. And it got up to something called a Rule 37 hearing, which is, which you, you basically told me what that was. I had never heard of it, but it's basically, uh, an attorney testifying against himself. Is that, did I get that right? What happened in my particular case? And, you know, most, uh, most of the time when that issue is, is raised, it's, it's always raised by another attorney going back and reviewing the work of the trial lawyer. Mm-hmm. And um, anytime you're involved in a uh, capital case, as this was, um, you know uh, going in that someone's going to come behind you and and offer criticism uh, about your work in the case. And so, literally within days of the, the trial, 
uh, or actually both trials being over, um, all, I say all six, it ended up actually being the four of us, uh, mm-hmm. the two lawyers who represented Mr. Eccles, uh, and, uh, myself and Mr. Crow met in Memphis with, uh, investigator Ron Lax, who was a composite character in, in the film Devil's Knot. Um, and, and we sat down and we just made a list. This is all the things that we should have done, could have done, would have done if we had known then what we know now and made a list, um, of, so that the lawyers coming in behind us would, would have a roadmap. We wanted to do it while everything was still fresh in our minds. And again, that's just part of the process. Now, most attorneys, including the two that uh, were in the room with Mr. Crow and Mr. Lax and I, um, when it comes down to being, um, I don't want to use the word honest because that may be too harsh, but uh, when it comes down to actually testifying about what you did and what you didn't do, most lawyers' ego will prevent them from, from saying, well, you know, I messed this up and here's the reason why. Um, they'll blame it on, uh, you know, this was my strategy and, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has, has held that, um, if, if it was a decision based on strategy and it just didn't work out, then it's not, something that uh, was was a fatal flaw in, in the representation. So, um, you know, I was never bashful. Um, um, I, I don't have an ego when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. And so that was the final appeal. This this was the, the end uh, other than the federal uh, appeal. And we were, this was where we were headed next. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, Mr. Crow and I were very candid with the court when it came our time to testify. And I, I knew it was my first jury trial. I, I couldn't escape that. Um, and under the American Bar Association guidelines at that time, you're not even supposed to be trying a capital murder case unless you have experience in doing so. Wow. Um, as, as, you know, uh, either as second chair um, but uh, you're not supposed to go from law school, practice for five years, uh, never have a criminal jury trial, and suddenly uh, you're defending the kid uh, who is only just a few years younger than you wow. um, in a capital murder case. You're, there's supposed to be a transition stage. And, of course, now, uh, <clears throat> even in Arkansas, you have to be what they refer to as death qualified uh, to, to even try a capital murder case. In fact, it's, it's gone to the, evolved into the point where the Public Defender Commission actually has, uh, an, a, a group of lawyers who have a lot of experience in that and they literally travel around the state handling capital cases for indigent folks. Mm. So it's a, it's a far different system now than it was. And of course, a lot of that's because of this case. That's um, interesting. Sure. And, and, uh, of course, this wasn't, something that was just happening here in Arkansas. It was happening and still happening in, in some places, but for the most part, uh, um, you had to be far more qualified than I was in, uh, in 1993 and 1994. And so I, you know, I just told the truth, um, not just because I was under oath, but because that's my duty to my client and it's my duty to, uh, the truth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Injustice, and that's what I did. Um, 
And, um, of course, his honor, Judge David Burnett, uh, decided that uh, I was the greatest thing since uh, uh, F. Lee Bailey. Um, <laughs> uh, since, uh, you know, I, I was the greatest lawyer that ever lived. And, and uh, ironically... Yeah, excuse me. I just want to interject that you would have to understand uh, this case to understand the depth of sarcasm that uh, that Dan is engaging in at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it, yeah. There's a lot of uh, irony and and uh, sarcasm is how I deal with a lot of this. Uh, I, I get all it. these issues, um, but I you know the the thing that he pointed out. Uh, and that the prosecutors pointed out, and that AG, the attorney general's always pointed out was, well, you've got to be a great lawyer because you never gave up and you're still fighting today. Oh, in wow. fact, you're fighting so good, you're, you're falling on your sword right now. Oh my God. And, and so, guys. holy crap. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, you're suddenly, um, I, I, I went from, you know, being a 30 year old kid, uh, trying his first jury trial to, to being, uh, a great uh, lawyer because I've been working on this case for 18 years uh, and um, had never given up. And I, I thought that, that you talk about sarcasm. Mm -hmm. um, that seemed sort of sarcastic to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's um, what's your Facebook page for your, uh, for your book? Is it harvest of innocence? It's Dan Stidham's harvest of innocence. Okay. And I see you and, with uh, all the guys there taking pictures with them. Um, I mean, you basically stuck with this for most of your adult life. Uh, and boy, you sat on that egg and you continue to sit on that egg. You're just never going to give up on this until even some justice, some semblance of justice is served, um, which is more admirable than anything I can say about a lot of people. You don't punch a clock with this thing. This is your life. This has involved you in your life. Has it had a personal toll on you? Oh, yes. Um, and it took a long time for me to be able to realize that uh, my marriage didn't uh, come through it. Um, and I missed a lot of Little League games and, oh, and uh, piano recitals. And uh, my daughter just recently graduated from law school. Oh. Wow, congratulations. Um, she went to university. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, she went to the University of Arkansas School of Law, where I did in Fayetteville. And, uh, and um, it's just, I'm so very proud of her. Uh, but my, uh, my co-author, uh, Tom McCarthy, um, uh, who is in the publishing business in, in New York and is an outstanding writer, and uh, he's really bringing this thing home, and I'm really excited about that. But he asked, um, you know, have you talked to your kids about uh, this? And, and of course, I've, I've got three boys and, and one daughter. And the boys are, are greatly different than the daughter. I'm, and I'm really happy that I only have one daughter because um, I'm paying for a wedding right now. I can't <laughs> imagine having to do that twice in one lifetime. But, but um, the boys... Um, you know, like, like I said, my oldest um, was was about the same age as, as uh, the victims, and then my second oldest, you know, he was just—I uh, think he's 
just under two years younger than his older brother. So, um, and it really didn't phase the young men at all. I mean, they just like, you know, you're dad and, and you're always going to be dad. And they didn't really perceive it, you know, very differently than, um, you know, they didn't have anything to compare it to. So, uh, even though they grew up with all this nonsense, they didn't, it didn't really seem to affect them. So when I talked to my daughter about it, um, she said, well, can I, can I just kind of write you a letter about it? Oh. And I said, well, sure, you know, and that, and when I read the letter, um, it's like, oh my God, uh, I had no idea. And now, of course, I was in tears and, and, uh, and I really felt like, uh, that I'd been a bad father. Okay. And, uh, and then when I get to the last paragraph of the letter, it's like, hey, now that I'm in law school, um, I really understand what was going on and, and I admire my father for doing what he did. And I know that he loves me and, and, uh, um, but, um, uh, of course I, I forwarded the letter on to Tom and, in New York and, and he's like, Oh my gosh, this is, this is a chapter. Uh, <laughs> and, and, um, so it, it, it really, you know, I didn't realize just how much it impacted the kids' lives until, mm-hmm. until that very moment. And, you know, I, and, and that's one of the things that I do in the book that, that, that that's why it's taken so long. I'll, I'll be brutally honest. Up until recently, uh, I, I wasn't really capable of opening myself up and, and burying my soul, so to speak. So let me segue into that because I think this is a, an appropriate time to get into the book. My friend, D. Dan Stidham, who has written a book uh, called The Harvest of Innocence or Harvest of Innocence. I'm not sure if there's an article in front of that or not. Um, and I want to talk to him a little bit about this book. And can you go through this and why it took you so long? It, I mean, we're talking about 25, 26 years later. Why did it take you so long to write a book about this case? Well, the the raw emotions of it and and the hardships of it. Um, my, as I stated, my, my marriage didn't emerge from it. Uh, my relationship with my children suffered uh, because of it. And, and professionally at the beginning, most of the way throughout the, the entire process, uh, uh, it suffered and, and, um, the emotional aspects of it and the scarring of it, um, that was the most difficult part. And, and I didn't really want to open myself up, uh, because, uh, there's, there's a couple of reasons. Um, primarily what I went through, um, is pale in comparison to what the victim's families went through, of course, of course, and even some of the investigators uh, went through uh, because they. I saw pictures of the bodies, and those pictures I'll never be able to get out of my mind, uh, even to this day. But but uh, I wasn't out there in that mud-filled ditch, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, pulling bodies out. So I, I know it's kind of has had a an impact on on their lives as well. But we all deal with stress and trauma differently and so i i uh i struggled with that and how honest i wanted to be about um all this happening and and now that my kids are grown and now that uh it's been 20 
probably 26 years, I guess, this uh, uh, May uh, since the, the kids were murdered. And But I, it, it was a slow process. And, and every time I would write a draft or send a chapter, I would, I would um, uh, you know, Tom would pull a little bit more out of me. And, and, uh, and I begin to grow comfortable with that. Um, and this it, is your collaborator. This is your collaborator. Uh, do you want to mention Tom McCarthy? Him? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Tom, Tom, uh, is an acquisitions editor for Lions Press in New York and, um, just an outstanding writer. He's, he, he's kind of a, a, a do it all when it comes to, he edits books for, for folks and, and he ghostwrites. Um, mm-hmm. he's, he's written several, bestsellers, uh, but that he'll never get credit for because he was a ghostwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, writes magazine articles, um, so he stays very busy. He's actually retired from the publishing business once, and um, but uh, just an outstanding guy. And he also has the strange um, uh, characteristic of being the only person I've ever met who didn't know anything about the West Memphis case. <laughs> and, and and I was stunned. Like you, you've heard of the West Memphis case? No, what's what's that all about? Oh my gosh! And uh, so you know, it it seemed kind of odd at first um, because I thought, wow, I'm gonna actually bring him up to snuff on on everything mm-hmm. as we get started here. And, and but now I realize how how interesting and important that is because he literally came into this with with no prejudices or built-in uh, preconceived notions about the case. And so uh, while it's taken us longer to get where we are today on the process, um, it was good because there's going to be a lot of readers who are going to be introduced to, to this right. for the first time right. uh, as well. Um, and <laughs> this is the, the really ironic part of, of all of this. Uh, I have a, um, if you can call it a gig, uh, a longstanding gig that I do each year, sometimes twice a year, I go to the Baltimore um, County uh, Public Schools um, and speak to teenagers uh, in a criminal justice class. Uh, Joel Brusowitz is the instructor, is an amazing person, amazing teacher. I wish I'd had a teacher like him. Uh, in, in uh, high school, mm-hmm. and um, I had a had one or two that that uh, were in the same league, but but Joel was just an amazing guy, and I, one of his students invited me to come out and speak. This was back in 2014, and um, uh, when I got there, you know, I had to dummy down my PowerPoint presentation because you know, these are kids; I can't show them crime scene photographs or autopsy photographs, and uh, but what I realized when I got there were, were two things. Number one, these kids knew more about this case than any people I've ever encountered. Oh, wow. And number two, they saw right through me. Um, you know, I, when I speak to lawyers or a group of criminal profilers or a group of paralegals or, um, you know, they never ask you that question. Mm-hmm. You just asked me. How did this case affect you personally? And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I've got this 15-year-old girl saying, well, how did this case affect you personally? And it's like, nobody's ever asked me that before wow. until, until that moment in Baltimore. And, and I deflected it. 
I was just like, nah, I don't want to, I'm not going to answer that. Uh, and at that point in my writing process, I, I hadn't been able to, to, to do that as well. And so I deflected the question, but all the way home, it bothered me on the flight back to Memphis. Um, and unfortunately for me, I have to drive through West Memphis to get to Memphis to get mm-hmm. to play. Mm-hmm. And every time I drive through there, I, I you know, I have flashbacks of, of that time and, and, and I, I can't, I've never been able to drive through there without looking at the crime scene from the interstate. It was so close. But this particular time on the way back, uh, I was with my fiance, my now wife, uh, Leanne and, I pulled over at the crime scene and she was like, what are you doing? Why, why are you doing this? And, and I was just drawn to the crime scene and I hadn't been there in years, many years. And I just had to kind of stop and, and there's nothing to see now. It's a, it's a, basically motels and hotels have gone up around the crime scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ditch is gone, but I just, I just, I had to be there and I really didn't understand why. And, uh, so then I said, Oh, we're going to go to the courthouse in Marion, which I hadn't been to, been by in many, many years. That's my decades. And, and, um, I wanted to, to, uh, um, go there. And, um, it, and of course this woman knows the scars better than, than I know them. Uh, mm-hmm. and she said, why are you doing this to yourself, Dan? Why, why are you wanting to go back and revisit these places that cause you so much pain? And, and I said, oh, I have to, I, I've reached the point. And, and now when people ask me, you know, I'm not afraid to, to talk about these things. And it's been a, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's been a metamorphosis, I guess, in, in the sense that I, I it's, it's taken this long to to get to this point where I'm I'm finally able to talk about it. So I have a, I have two points to make about this. One is to tell the audience that this crime scene that Dan's talking about is a little triangle of woods called the Robin Hood Woods, where um, it's right it abuts it used to abut the interstate, and um, there was a car a truck wash. Uh, on the periphery of this wood. Uh, and that's where the three boys disappeared. And that's where they were found in a drainage ditch, uh, buried face down, nude, hogtied. And apparently they died, uh, by suffocation. They were drowned, correct? But al- also after being mutilated, um, and brutalized, uh, they were, they were hogtied with their, their feet and hands, um, with their shoe, their own shoelaces. And that's actually how I open. My script, Devil's Knot, was with that scene with them handing over, one of them handing over his shoe, their shoelaces, which is just horrifying. Um, but the second point I want to make is that I tell my, my screenwriting students that the only way to become a legitimate writer is to not be afraid to open yourself up and put yourself into the, onto the page. Um, and it sounds like that that moment, those moments of catharsis are what allowed you to write Harvest of Innocence, which is hopefully coming out pretty soon, right? Well, you know, uh, yeah, it, uh, our deadline is, is June. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to have, uh, we want to have a publisher in place by the end of the year. Um, 
and and yeah, and, and people they'll they'll get on my Facebook page or my website and and send me questions uh, and say how far are we and and I keep saying well soon 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 <laughs> and of course, somebody pointed out the other day you know you've been saying this for like five years then <laughs> um, but but it's uh, it's a process it is. and and it is. and then the story continues to evolve uh, even to this day and and um, so it, it's hard to to jump off and it's even more difficult to put the jigsaw puzzle together. It, it's almost like when we were writing our brief to the Arkansas Supreme court mm-hmm. and also the U S Supreme court uh, for, um, uh, for review. And, 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 you know, it's like, well, you got, you got these page links and you got your margins can only be this wide. Oh, and right, and sure. uh, when, when you file it, they literally get a ruler out and verify everything. It's You're all kidding. in compliance. Oh, and, wow. And it's it's all designed so that the appellate judges don't have to read too much. Um, <laughs> they sound like producers like, in Hollywood, exactly like. Uh, it, well, yeah, it's kind of the same, yeah, same <laughs> same process. And so, so we were forced, compelled to to abandon certain arguments that we thought had merit because they just would not give us the, the space to do it. Mm, I, I see. And um, so, and so now I find myself in the same place because um, the first draft. 562 or three pages long and Tom said uh, yeah that's not going to work uh, we got to get it down to about 250 oh and I said how do you put my life into 250 pages oh and, and of course th- that's the great thing about the majesty of Tom uh, is, is that he can say in three paragraphs what it takes me three chapters to sure. say and, and that's 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 the beauty of our our collaboration is is that um, he's able to do that. I want to remind our audience that uh, this is both Plot Points podcast and Whoever Writes Monsters. I'm with uh, Judge Dan Stidham, who was a young attorney in 1992 and 1993 when the West Memphis Three case happened. Uh, Dan and I became friends in 2005 when um, we would have a series of conversations regarding the case in order for me to, to help me write uh, the, the, the script that I wrote, which, which really didn't bear very much, very much resemblance to what the final movie uh, ended up to be, which is fine because that's the way Hollywood works. But, um, but I, I, I have an undying appreciation for what Dan has given uh, not only to me, but to this case and to the people in the world, because, I mean, if you want to inform yourselves on anything uh, about this, there's several documentaries, three or four of which were by HBO. One was done by Peter Jackson called uh, West of Memphis, I believe. Um, there's the book, the original book by Mara Leverett called Devil's Knot that details a lot of the misbehaving of the law enforcement entities and the situation in West Memphis. There's court transcripts. There's many scads of um, of source material for this, and then coming soon will be. Uh, I mean, I I don't mean to characterize you this way, but from the horse's mouth, we're going to get Harvest of Innocence uh, from Dan Stidham, who was and has always been involved intimately involved in this case. And I would imagine Dan that your book, even though it's you know specific to uh, this case and your and you and your client Jesse Miss Kelly. 
I would imagine there's a lot of lessons here for our criminal justice system. And just you went through so much to get to this point. It, it, it must be daunting to try to think, you know, like you said, you have to get into 250 pages. How in the world do you do that? There's just so much stuff here. The Alford plea, the Rule 37, the Arkansas Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, your partners, your life. Oh, my. I, I mean, we, you and I could go on for hours and hours and hours. And we have. So uh, we, we certainly have over the years, that's for sure. Yeah. What do you hope Harvest of Innocence will accomplish? Well, just like Hollywood, the, the publishing business, I'm learning. Uh, that may not be the that's the working title, but uh, the publisher obviously will will make some decisions uh, with regard like to it. that. And I like it. And I, I do too. And and um, I think. Uh, you know, it's one of those um, uh, titles that you know you read it and they say, "What does that have to do with the West Memphis case?" And and it has a lot to do with uh, uh, the harvest of, of innocence because uh, uh, whether you're talking about the actual victims of the case or the three defendants who were wrongfully accused, uh, or you're talking about the lawyers involved and myself included. Um, Everybody kind of lost their innocence with regard to this. And there are so many lessons uh, that um, can be learned from this case. In fact, um, it, it's it's taught in law schools. It's uh, obviously the topic of high school uh, studies. Right. And and um, so uh, then that's why I travel the country speaking about the case because of these lessons. And that's one of the tasks of, of the book itself is to to point out these uh, misgivings that our criminal justice system had. Uh, some things have gotten better, uh, but some things still need some fine-tuning, and, and that's the goal. And, and there's, there's, there's two goals that, that, um, that we're not trying to, to uh, reach, and that is um, we're not going to retell the story of the trials and mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and, you know, step by step what happened in the case. What this is about is, is my story and how the case, uh, affected me, uh, my family and, and, um, uh, people laugh at me when I say this, but I, I'm kind of the Forrest Gump of the West Memphis Three case. I just happened to be there when everything happened. <laughs> and, and uh, so, you know, there's been four documentaries, a feature film, uh, a couple of books, and uh, most notably Mars' book, Devil's Not. Right. But I'm, it's not a retelling of of the story. And, and, uh, and that was the difficult part is settling on a narrative. And um, uh, I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that this was my idea because uh, it wasn't. Um, uh, there were a couple of things that I've read over the years, uh, um, books that I'd read that had had uh, nonlinear narratives involved, mm-hmm. and a couple of movies. And and so we've, we've settled in, into this narrative, and I love it. I actually love it. It's kind of the old Dan Stidham looking back at the younger Dan Stidham mm-hmm. um, 25 years later and saying, this is what happened to me. And this is um, how I dealt with this issue. And we're not going to retell the, the story of the trial. We're not going to retell uh, the story of the appellate process unless it's unique to to my experience. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't want readers to think that 
you know, this is going to be something that replaces Devil's Knot as the encyclopedia of of uh, the West Memphis case. It's, it's not. It's going to be about um, the the background of the case. You know, uh, the things that happened that, that nobody knows uh, uh, happened but me. And I, I know that's that's spooky for me to utter those words because that's one of the things from the case uh, that Aaron Hutchison had said. Nobody knows what happens oh, but me, and that's. One of the things that uh, they used to scare Jesse into making his so-called confession, but, mm. but uh, it, it's about the relationships that I that I've made along the way. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not unique in this, but but many of my best friends are people that I've never actually sat in the same room with or mm. or shook their hand, and and you would fit into that category. But because we've never actually met, and, no, we and um, yeah. so so you 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 gain these relationships, and and they're important. And so um, uh, you know, and there were there were things that happened that I couldn't talk about for many years because I still had appeals pending, and mm-hmm. and uh, there were certain little secrets that I couldn't divulge. But that's what this is: is is uh, all those things that nobody knows about. Uh, that have never been told. It's not a book about revenge. Uh, I mentioned earlier, no one in the state of Arkansas has had to atone for their sins. And, and while that's true, and, and I do point that out in the book, it's not about, uh, revenge and I'm right and they're wrong. Um, it's, it's about what happened and how, how scary it is when something frightening happens and, uh, a community comes together much like Salem, Massachusetts, uh, 300 years earlier. Mm. Um, the similarities are just frightening when you compare Salem, uh, to West Memphis. And this was the West Memphis witch trials. And, and, um, of course now we know, um, what happened. We just don't know who did it. And you have your you have your theories about uh I don't, we don't have to get into them on this but I know you have your theories about who the actual not the not the identities of the murders but the the who may have done this these horrible crimes correct I do I do and and uh, I was actually uh being interviewed for a uh a documentary that I think is going to be on uh, the Discovery Channel here uh, sometime soon. I don't know the production date, but I was in the middle of my interview and, and I got asked the question, did Terry Hobbs, do you think Terry Hobbs committed these murders? And and I said, no. And uh, the, the, just, the, the person was interviewing me just like, are you kidding me? You know, what? what? Uh, well, the reason, and, you, uh, the reason that came up is initially uh, John Mark Byers was, was implicated uh, in the HBO documentaries and and a lot of uh, a lot of stuff uh, for that, but didn't they find um, a hair his hair on one of the kids' shoes or something like that? Was that why Terry Hobbs came up? It is um, that, and the fact that we don't have a timeline for his movements uh, oh, that's complete. Okay, uh, John Mark Byers, we can account for virtually every second uh, where he was. Uh, leading up to the to the homicide, and there's a lot of uh, 
innuendo and a, a lot of uh, things that you can point and say Terry Hobbs did this, but um, we have a foreign DNA sample that was taken at autopsy that that doesn't match Terry Hobbs, doesn't match uh, the friend uh, David Jacoby that uh, was with him that, that night uh, when they looked at the crime scene for the boys and didn't find them. Um, and that's where the two hairs were found. There's mm-hmm. one on Jacoby's on a tree stump and, and Hobbs in, inside a ligature of one of the knots. And that is, that is damning evidence, but it's not enough proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And then when you couple that with, with, uh, this foreign DNA sample, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Well, so I know that- I'm not, I'm not ready to throw him off the list of suspects. But um, I really think that we're looking for a serial killer. Mm, which, you know, I, I've been doing work and research on serial killers since since just before this case uh, came about. And I happen to agree with you. It's the way that they were killed, the way that they the bodies were uh, disposed of, the fact that there's no specific crime scene that anybody can point to. A lot of that points to somebody who's done this before and knows what they're doing when they're, you know, committing these horrible crimes. And and um, that points to a serial killer. That points to somebody who's grown much more adept at, at murdering and, and torturing people. And uh, I, I do happen to agree with you that that's I, I think that's what happened. And am I wrong? Um, isn't the convergence of those two freeways? Uh, a corridor for a lot of illicit uh, drugs and child pornography and things like that. I mean, it is a major, it's the 40 and what, what other freeway? Um, it's uh, Interstate 40 uh, that, that traverses the country east to west uh, to each coast. And then Interstate 55, which uh, goes from New Orleans to Chicago. Yeah. So uh, it's the third busiest interstate highway exchange in the country. And uh, um, West Memphis is tucked in between those two freeways, like on a, almost on a V right underneath them. Well, they they actually converge about. Um, oh, wow. I, I, I'm, I'm estimating distance here, but they, the 40 uh, and 55 converge um, right literally at the doorstep of where Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin lived at Lakeshore Trailer Park. Mm. Um, and then uh, the actual scene where the bodies were recovered is probably a mile down the road and then maybe uh, a quarter of a mile, uh, could be even a half a mile. Suddenly the interstate's dissipating and uh, if you're traveling east uh, on that particular stretch of Interstate 40 and 55, that they become one there, and it's, um, and then they split again, and you can go right, uh, and it takes you to Jackson, Mississippi, and down to New Orleans, mm-hmm. or you can go left and uh, end up in Nashville and and out east. So, um, and right where these two interstates connect, and then suddenly um, separate, that's where the crime scene was, mm-hmm. and 15,000. Big rig trucks go through there every day. Fifteen thousand. Wow. Um, the whole town simply is based on uh, the proximity to Memphis, um, 
and the fact that uh, all these big rigs, uh, there's truck stops and and um, everything catering to to uh, interstate commerce right there. Yeah, it's um it's a pretty interesting area um, of the country. And back in '92, there was these there were those woods that we had talked about, the Robin Hood Woods. That uh, was just a small wooded area, right uh, near the freeway, kind of abutted uh, the freeway. The I don't know which one, but looking at it, you could see why kids would be attracted to it. And unfortunately, uh, they disappeared that one day, and they and they were never seen again alive. So um, anyway, I I think we're gonna probably. Gosh, Dan, I I. I hope you'll come back when your book uh, is either published or it's about to be published and we can talk a little bit more about there's so many there's there's thousands of hours of discussion here. And uh, even though you have, you know, covered this uh, infinitum with um, with various entities, I do appreciate you coming on and, and being patient with me and covering it again. Um but please come back if you will, if I can put the bike on one more time. Okay, great. And then um, I want to remind our audience, uh, this is the amazing, my friend, Dan Stidham, who, who I just have so much respect and ad- admiration for. Plus, you know, he's just a damn good guy. I don't know how else to put it, but. Uh, <laughs> well, I enjoyed- appreciate the no, accolade you. and you're very kind. Now you have a great sense of humor. You're smart. You're not, uh, you're not, you have very little ego when it comes to this. It's more, you know, more about telling the truth and getting the truth out than anything else. That's for certain. <laughs> well, thank you, my friend. And, and, uh, it was great to talk to you again. And, and one of these days, we're going to have to end up in the same zip code. For, yeah, I'd love to, buy you, love to buy you a beer or whatever. So, well, let me, let me, uh, let me do an outro here really quickly. Um, so we've been talking to uh, my friend Dan Stidham, who is uh, a wonderful human being and a great judge and attorney and a, 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 a inveterate liar when it comes to fishing because um, he he thinks he tells everybody he's a great fisherman, which isn't is probably isn't true. But, <laughs> but um, Dan, it's been a joy. I've I've known you for you know going on uh, fifteen, seventeen years. I don't I don't know and. Uh, you've never ever bored me. Period. With anything you had to say, I've always appreciated your your scholarship and your knowledge and your sense of humor. So, thank you so much uh, for for agreeing to be on my podcasts. Um, again, I hope you will uh, concede to come back uh, when your when your book is closer to being published or when it becomes published, because I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about uh, then too. But thank you so much for. For being with me. Thanks for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Well, the pleasure was all mine and I hope my audience is. So this is Plot Points Podcast and also Whoever Writes Monsters. Uh, I'm Mark Sevy. I am uh, part of OC Screenwriters and OC Film and Television and also um, a professional screenwriter who appreciates people like Dan Stidham more than you can imagine. So thanks again. Uh, and as always, be inspired do good work. That was my interview with Judge Dan Stidham. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate your time. We'll see you a couple weeks with a new Plot Points podcast and a new Whoever Writes Monsters. Thank you. Thank you.